Training consistency is where growth of fitness actually occurs. That Triathlon Show, episode 40. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and today's topic is how to set up your perfect half or full distance triathlon. I have a special guest today, Bevan Mackinnon from New Zealand. He's an elite coach, and he's a double age world champion from 2016 when, when he won both the Ironman 70.3 and Ironman World Championships in his age group. And finally, he's also a world-class podcaster as the host of Fitter Radio, which you may have heard. And if not, I recommend you go and listen to that. He coaches pro athletes like Braden Curry and Amelia Watkinson, among others. And in today's show with Bevan, we discuss how to structure your training plan for your half or full distance goal race, how you can set yourself up for success in the days leading up to the race, how to perfect your race execution on race day, and we go into the most common mistakes that triathletes do in their training for and in racing in half and full distance triathlons. But just a couple of minutes here before we dive into the interview with Bevan, we have a listener question. Frankie P on Twitter sent me this question saying... I bought my first road bike last week and I don't know if it's set up correctly or how to set it up better. So I'm going to take a couple of minutes to answer that. Thank you, Frankie, for your question and also for promoting me on Twitter. I really appreciate that. So what I would say, I would highly recommend that you go to the store where you bought the bike and have them help you set it up. And usually what I've found at least is that you can get a quick and dirty bike fit, which will be good enough for you for for free if you have bought the bike in that bike store. So so that's usually not not an issue. They they will take 15 minutes to, to set you up. And that won't be a perfect fit, but it will be one that that is decent for you and that you you won't get injured and you won't be too far off your optimal position so that's what i would recommend to start with of course a good bike fit is the most valuable thing that you can buy for your bike or related to to your bike in much more valuable than any any component so so if you have the money you can go and spend a couple of hundred dollars to go and get a really good proper bike fit and that will be perfect for you but it's not necessarily something that you need to do now since i know based on our twitter discussions that you're new to triathlon so just getting that quick and dirty setup but getting it done by a professional working in that bike store is what i would recommend i mean sure there are guidelines that you can follow for setting it up yourself with the help of a partner but but really to be honest the first thing that you need to do if you want to set it up yourself is to set your cleats so these are all I'm generalizing now because there are different variations of bike fits and setups that you can use. But but basically your cleats, you want to have have them set up so that the balls of your feet are on top of your pedals. And then you need to set your, your saddle height. And that should be one that when your pedal is at the six o'clock position, so the furthest down in the pedal cycle, then you should have a, a knee bend of, of roughly 
25, 30 degrees is, is something that I've seen as guidelines. And, and then you can adjust the fore and aft position of the saddle so that if you drop a plumb line from your knee, it will fall right on top of the pedal axle. And then you go on to set up the handlebars using similar guidelines. But as you can hear, it gets a bit complicated. You can do it, but, but it's not something that I would recommend. I would recommend that you go to your bike store and get that quick and dirty setup and start riding and uh, get out on the roads. And then as you get more into the sport and, and get more advanced, more serious about it, you can get a real setup that you pay for and they fit you like really as good as possible. So thank you again, Frankie, for the question. And remember that all of you guys can send in questions to my email, michael at scientifictriathlon.com, and that's Michael with a K. Or you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at SciTriat. So with that said, let's go into the interview with Bevan Macknan. Okay, well, I'm pretty much a career athlete. I've played lots of different sports in my time but obviously focused primarily on triathlon, especially in my from my 20s onwards, um, although I did probably do my first triathlon when I was about, I think, 13. And I'm a professional triathlon coach running an independent business here in New Zealand. Uh, we also produce a podcast that delves into everything you need to know about swim, run, bike, and eating. And obviously, I'm a competitive elite athlete in my own right, so I try to mix both of those things together. Yeah, and I can plug your podcast. I've been listening to it for quite a long time and it's become, it's uh, not as if I'm trying to, to to kiss your ass or anything, but it's the best triathlon podcast there is, definitely. Yeah, so, I agree yeah. with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's dive into today's topic, which is how to set up your perfect half or full Ironman performance. And can you give us a quick overview of whether you think there are any essential factors, whatever level that you're at, if your goal is beat, win the world championships at your age group or to just complete your first one, what are the factors that need to go into planning and setting up your performance? Well, uh, first of all, it's just primarily important to be consistent in your training. Training consistency is where growth of fitness actually occurs. It's not in any sort of one single session or one mega workout. It's about getting up and treating your training almost like you're on a course of medication. You don't want to take more than the prescribed amount, but you want to make sure that you actually take it every single day. And success in endurance sports is developed through, we know we don't have any overnight successes. It's all about consistency and playing the long game and you know, just being able to, to develop some sort of routine that gets that gets you up out of bed and, and doing some form of swim, biking and running on a daily basis. I also think that for a lot of athletes, whether it's professionals or first timers, the first thing that you should concentrate on is establishing the frequency of training before you consider about trying to go for exceptionally long periods of time. Uh, so in all three sports, uh, you know, if you start off with one or two sessions a week in each sport, before you try to lengthen those sessions, I think it's, it's much more important to become three or four sessions a week in each sport. As I mentioned before, if we can become very frequent trainers in all three disciplines and take more doses of medication, not, not overload ourselves too much, that's the perfect platform where we can build the durability and still progress the, the basic endurance that we need for this sport. But by increasing the frequency of training, 
we do actually also then build up the durability within ourselves that will cope with us extending the duration that we start to train for. Um, I also think that when we do start to extend, you know, the duration of training, we definitely want to build that chronic training load slowly, especially in the impact or weight bearing sports. I think it's very, very important to be very cautious with running. For new athletes, we really, who may be taking up triathlon for the first time, and especially if they come from no running background at first, in a lot of instances for me, I have them walking before they run and then running with walking interspersed within it. And once they prove that they can remain injury free, I then can progress them to continuous running. I think also, again, it doesn't matter if you're new or you're a seasoned pro, you have to develop a way to listen to the signals that your body is giving you. I think a lot of new athletes struggle with this because if they don't come from a history of sports, then understanding what fatigue is, is difficult to develop an, an acute awareness of. So I do believe that there is a heck of a lot of fitness technology out there that can be utilized in this space as now. Heart rate, you know, software platforms like Training Peaks, um, even measuring resting heart rate in the morning or using heart rate variability apps. A lot of these devices and platforms and technologies really do allow us to tell us when we shouldn't train because most people underestimate the value of recovery. And it's in the periods when we recover that we actually grow and we become fitter. When we work out, we just get tired. And in the periods between the workouts, we actually adapt and become fitter. So, so understanding when to actually take some time out or to value what recovery actually does for us is, is pretty important as well. And that can happen across very new people, all the way through, obviously, to elite pros because we hear it all the time about people overdoing it. Um, I also think when you're, when you're new to the sport especially, and this is something that pros probably understand a little bit better, is exactly how easy you can train, especially if we're considering an ultra-distance event like a 70.3 or an Ironman, the intensity that we can train at that still actually pro produces some level of fitness is, is, is underestimated a lot with new athletes. Um, even working at around about 60 to 75% of potentially our threshold abilities is enough overload for most athletes to still to progress their fitness. But I do find with a lot of new athletes, there's a tendency to move above 60% effort to 75% effort. And we're found exercising in sort of a, a gray area a lot of the time, and that can lead to a lot of issues. Um, and I see that in pros as well. Um, so finding out a way to be able to establish what your threshold capabilities are is important as well because then that allows you to establish the different levels of training intensity that you actually want to exercise at. And I do, and I'm, I'm a great believer across the board in, in polarizing your training. So once you've established your thresholds, understanding how much work you want to do in easy to moderate intensities and how much work you want to do at high-end intensities. And again, as I say, that's universal to new athletes and, and to professional athletes. I mean, lastly, I'd probably put into the mix, really consider your nutrition. Your nutrition is not only a window into how quickly you'll recover and also fuel your workouts, but 
I'm a very big believer for these long distance races that improving your body's ability to burn fat is vitally important and your day-to-day nutrition plays a, a massive part in establishing how effective your metabolic efficiency is. So I think um, those are the basic tenants that I address whenever I'm working with first timers or all the way through to the professional athletes. Yeah, that's really excellent. And, and as you say, that's something that applies to, to everybody and it's just a different level. So you maybe need to optimize your, to get to the pro level from an elite age group where you need to really, really focus on recovery. That can be the main difference sometimes or, or just optimizing your nutrition. But, but even just for a beginner trying to do their first race, that just getting the basics right, that's required basically to have the success that they want and whether that be to just com- complete the event or, or get a certain time that they they try to get. So continuing on that track, how do you go about then structuring the plan for an event like a 70.3 or an Ironman 2 for different levels of athletes? How does it differ between beginners and between people that are at more of an elite end of the age group spectrum? Uh, It doesn't probably differ a heck of a lot. I mean, what you need to firstly establish is the athlete's history or their experience. um, And then that probably also defines their potential durability to training because understanding what their physiology and also their physical makeup, the capacities that they actually have will define what kind of load that you can actually apply to them. So really, for me, it it doesn't really differ. The principles that I talked about before in terms of understanding your training intensities are vitally important, but understanding who that person is based on what they're capable of absorbing in terms of the work that you give them is, is also important. And then progressing that work really, again, depends on their experience and, and what you find they're capable of tolerating. The key tenants that I, I spoke about before about developing your chronic training load, because in long distance triathlon, the chronic training load that you're able to absorb is actually a, a massive influential part of what kind of performance you'll actually deliver on race day. So, so how we progress that differs maybe only slightly depending on what an athlete sort of illustrates that they're capable of dealing with on a week-to-week basis. So I use a lot of things like training peaks and I use a lot of fitness technologies that help establish how hard a workout was on an individual because whether you're a new athlete or whether you're a professional athlete, when a coach asks you how hard a workout was, we always get about the same response. Well, you know, it was pretty solid or it was it was a strong effort or it was tempo or whatever. Now, those phrases don't actually mean a lot to us. What we're actually trying to define more definitively is how stressful that workout was. And by using something like training peaks and their metrics like training stress score, acute training load, chronic training load, that gives us a much more definitive way of assessing how hard workouts were and also help us how to prescribe future workouts so that the overload of stress is delivered in a way that we know the athlete will recover from but it was also sufficient enough that it is actually still moving their fitness capabilities forward. Now, for me in particular, if I was to talk about the way I approach, let's say, a more elite athlete's preparation for a race, and and let's talk about my own, I tend to work in a slightly, I prefer the reverse periodization model. So instead of building a large aerobic base maybe then adding in strength endurance and as you come closer to the race, finishing with high intensity uh, work, 
I tend to like to turn that on its head and I do a lot of my higher intensity work and biomechanical work in the early part of my preparation. The volume is lower at that particular part of the year because once I include quality work into an athlete's program, we don't want to be dealing with high volume loads as well. So I do a lot of biomechanical work and neuromuscular work um, to improve the potentials in those areas in the, in the early stage of a program. We then transition into more threshold uh, work, so working on people's lactate threshold capabilities. And then I transition into the, the race-specific work, so muscular endurance, and then I start to build the volume that's required for whether it's a 70.3 race or, a, or an Ironman race. And as I start to prepare an athlete for those particular events, that's when I do incorporate workouts that I see as equivalent to race day expectations. So a lot of the workouts that we do in our specific phase of preparation, we create by using training peaks, a training stress that would be equivalent to what they would expect to encounter on race day. So, you know, that would be sort of my brief overview of, of how I would actually approach a preparation. If I was a more novice athlete, I might not go through a reverse periodization model. I might stick to a slightly more linear periodization model and, and stick to the, the more simplistic form of building base first. But in any situation, there's no one size fits all. And so you need to, as I say, establish the athlete's experience levels, their durability levels, and what you think they're capable of tolerating. And then you can make a decision at the beginning of the program. Mm, excellent. And for the reverse periodization, that, that means that you're going from the very extremes of non-race-specific and then you're moving further and further towards the race-specific training that you do the closer you get to your goal race, basically. Yeah. yeah. So I would do lots of short, high-intensity intervals and biomechanical work, so like stride-outs, short, high-cadence work on the bike, maybe even in the pool, start with 25s and 50s um, that are done at, at, at much faster than race pace. With, with much faster cadence than race pace to fire the biomechanical and the neuromuscular potential in the athlete first. And so that's when you do that kind of work, you don't want your volume to be too high because of the injury risk. So moving closer to the race and the days leading up to the race where so much can go wrong, you can screw up a whole lot of things in the days leading up to the race. How do you make sure that you set yourself up for success on race day in those days? And, and how do you then transition into race day itself and make sure that you actually execute on race day? Well, it's interesting because I think with especially with long, long distance triathlon, there's a tendency for a lot of athletes to always, how should I say, be less than confidence in, in their fitness level. And therefore, they're wanting to train as close to the race to here as, as humanly possible. But if we, we're talking about Ironman preparation, we sometimes lose sight of the fact for a lot of us athletes who uh, socialize with a lot of other Ironman athletes whose jobs revolve around triathlon, who immerse themselves in a triathlon culture, we forget that it's still considered an ultra-distance endurance event. And the levels of fatigue that we build up when we train for an event like an Ironman are quite pronounced, a lot more than obviously a majority of other amateur sports. I mean, sometimes athletes are training 15 to 20 hours a week. They're doing two sessions a day, sometimes three, which is a heck of a lot more training than, than most other amateur sports. And the fatigue that builds up from those particular races does need to be unloaded so that we can go into a race 
with not only high levels of fitness, but also high levels of freshness. And I think some athletes tend to lose sight of the fact that in their build-up, they're actually in a constant state of fatigue. They've probably forgotten what it feels like to be truly fresh. So what I tend to do is sometimes I really have to explain that to athletes because when we start like maybe an Ironman taper, which for some people could be three weeks before race day, where we start to reduce the, the volume of training, for other athletes, it might be 10 to 14 days out from a race. I'm really big on explaining the fact that uh, that these athletes haven't actually felt fresh for a long period of time. And if we go into a race without some freshness, we'll never be able to express the fitness that we actually have. So so I'm very big on educating athletes in and around the, the requirements of taper. Again, what I do is, is I defer to some of the, the fitness applications and technologies out there and, and as I mentioned, training peaks. And because we can act- accurately measure and assess the stress from each and every workout, I'm very big on creating a taper plan that um, maintains levels of fitness, but the, the training becomes less stressful so that we can track the metrics that we have from those particular platforms to ensure that once we get to race day, we're able to reduce fatigue in the system as well, hold on to a, a very, very substantial level of fitness, but remove that fatigue and be confident that in removing that fatigue, we'll be arrive at race day with the perfect combination of freshness and fitness and so that our form on race day will be very, very good. So being confident enough to back that training off, understand that freshness is a vital important component to race day fitness is important Um, and then also trying to reduce a lot of the other areas of stress in our lives which is mental stress lifestyle stress nutritional stress environmental stress work stress I think it's very very important to ensure that especially in the last seven days leading into an A race that not only physical stress has been reduced but a lot of the mental stresses that could contribute to leaving us still in a state of fatigue that we we do our best to ensure that we've planned ahead so that those things are removed from from the body as well so that we're feeling both mentally and physically fresh on race day. And then on race day itself for the execution part do you have any special tricks up your sleeve that you (laughs) draw upon? Uh, Yes Um, You want to make sure that your ego is intact so that you're mentally strong, but your ego is not intact to be in a race with other people. And so what I, what I advise my athletes is, is and again, we'll assume that this does apply to 70.3 and to Ironman. Uh, one of the key pieces of advice that I give them is, is imagine that they turned up to the venue, the race venue, the day before it was due to be race day and they had to do the event on their own with no other competitors around them and produce their maximum effort and best effort. If they can visualize what that would mean and what that would look like, then they need to then take that uh, mental picture and that visualization of how they would execute their race with no one else around them and then repeat that process on race day. Because Ironman and Half Ironman is not about reacting to anyone else in the race. It's about internally focusing on what you're capable of doing and the energy and effort that you need to deliver to the race day across both all three disciplines so that you're unaffected by your competition around you. And the only time that I say to my athletes that they're allowed to 
be aware of other competitors in terms of whether they're going to race them or not is in the last five kilometers to three kilometers of the run. Um, because then it may come down to whether they can react to other athletes. And what I believe that this allows them to do is internally develop the best pacing strategy that they can deliver on race day because changing your pace or changing your thought process or changing your decision-making by following someone else's race or following someone else's intensity in 99% of cases leads to derailing your particular efforts because we well know in, in half Ironman and Ironman that most athletes get their pacing wrong and that they fall apart on the run. And if you're following someone else who is about to repeat that process and fall apart on the run, then you'll fall apart on the run as well. So that's generally one of the coaching tips that I give to my athletes. And it's a way that I've developed my own racing plan over time. Um, if you tune into what you can do, then you'll produce the best performance for yourself on race day. And I know that you practice what you preach, having listened to your race reports, that you weren't actually aware of where your competitors were in the field in, in those world championship titles that you got, if I remember correctly. No, not at all. No, I had no idea at all. No idea at all. And, and, and in point of fact, and, and I think that's a very good point that you make, in Kona this year, the way that I race, because my strengths are the swim and bike, I assumed I was in the lead of the run. Uh, of the whole race once I got to the run in my age group. And I didn't know that I was actually in second place. And I will admit freely now that because the run was so difficult in Kona, that it, had someone told me that I was in second place, I think I would have mentally given up. Um, but given the assumption that I thought I was in first place, I just continued to focus on what I could do in that particular moment. And I continued to run in the best way that I could. And the other athlete that was ahead of me fell apart and I was able to get into the lead and, and win the age group. But had I focused on him and the fact that he was in front of me, um, then I think that my game would have changed and I would not have been able to win the race. So by continuing to focus on what I could do actually allowed me to, and, and look, I mean, we can never influence what other athletes do. And the fact that his race fell apart um, meant that by me continuing to focus on what I could do ended up in and obviously becoming a world champ at Kona. Totally. So the final question that I want to get into before we go into the rapid fire question segment is if you can just very briefly list the two or three most common mistakes that you see athletes do in their preparations for a 70.3 or an Ironman race. Well, I, th I think it's again, not understanding their personal physiology enough. I think group training is a wonderful motivator However, group training is also conducted at the intensity that the best athlete in that group likes to dictate on on the day. And long distance Ironman training is about volume does matter. So training volume does matter. And being able to accumulate training volume only happens when we actually define what is low intensity training, what is moderate intensity training, what is high intensity training, and sticking to our personal threshold abilities so that we can accumulate the right levels of training volume for ourselves as individuals without getting ill or injured. And too often do we see athletes becoming ill or injured, which is in the majority of situations because 
training intensity has been too high uh, and lack of recovery between training sessions has, has, has not been focused on and we, we get run down and we, we either get ill or injured. So, so understanding our own personal training thresholds and then being intelligent enough to stick to them irrespective of the environment that we're training in. So if we're in a group environment and and the effort is just too high, then having the confidence to pull out of that particular situation and, and training to the level that is best suited to you as an individual. I think that's, um, that's a vitally important part of training. Um, and then also, if you do know your, your thresholds, then it does give you a, a much better understanding of, of how to execute your race on race day so that you do know what are the, the intensities that you can travel at that will allow you to get from start to finish and, and obviously not um, mispace the race. So I think, again, it all comes back to understanding yourself as an individual athlete and training to the best of your ability um, rather than someone else's ability. And I think that's a very, very important part that, that most novice athletes miss. That's good advice. Very good advice. So let's move into the rapid fire question segment where you'll just take a quick second or at most 30 seconds to answer five questions that I have. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. So what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? I would actually say that the most value I think I've got is from a website called Swim Smooth, which is a swimming website uh, based out of Perth in Australia. And I've learned a huge amount about swimming from, from their website and also their interactive platform now, which is called, I think, Swim Smooth Guru. And if you're a self-taught swimmer or someone who doesn't have access to good quality coaching, I would thoroughly recommend that you investigate Swim Smooth's website because I think there's... I've been able to upskill myself a lot personally as a swimmer by using that particular website. And also it's been hugely valuable for me as a coach as well. Yeah, it's a good resource. I use it as well. And my yeah. first swim coach used it when she was teaching me how to swim. Yeah, so what's awesome. your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Oh, it's my P5 bike and my profile wheels. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, up until 10 days ago, it was my Pinarello Growl uh, bike. But just prior to Kona, my, new, my sponsor, uh, we were wanting to move to a Cervelo. And I've always wanted a P5. Um, and I was so glad I got it. It's just a beautiful bike. And I've always ridden, been sponsored by Profile. And I've got a pair of their tubular 78 wheels and, and they just seem to be a wonderful combination and I just love cycling. So yeah, P5 and my profile wheels. That's the correct answer. <laughs> so <laughs> what's the personal habit that, that's helped you achieve triathlon success? I would actually probably say, and it's my capacity to train on my own. And I think that's, let's say for Kona, um, there were very few people that, are, look, I am a, a very big individual trainer. My work allows me to do a lot of my training during the day that people who are working nine to five jobs are unable to do. And I've always been someone who, who really enjoys um, training on, or has no problem in training on my own. And for Kona, I probably would have only done one or two sessions with other people unless it was training camps with my athletes. And I do think that that's developed an, a very, very good ability to just focus on myself and on race day. So, I, yeah, I'd probably say 
you know, being able to go out, especially on long bike rides. I think that's crucial to be able to do long bike rides at race intensity on your own is vitally important. And I've been able to do that forever, really. So, yeah, training on my own is, is a very valuable tool. And what's your favorite race that you've done? Challenge Wanaka. <laughs> Challenge Wanaka is is not my best race, although I have had I finished third in the pro race there once. So that was a particularly special memory. But I have raced all around the world. I have raced in America, you know, in the UK. I've raced in Asia multiple times. You know, obviously New Zealand Ironman, but th that part of the world, Wanaka and the Queenstown uh, Lakes District here in New Zealand is is just the most beautiful, beautiful part of the country. And the race itself is very, very tough. It's environmentally affected through the winds. But if you want one place that can continually distract you from what you're trying to do is Challenge Wanaka because you go around a corner and you've, you're greeted with an alpine lake or a snowy cap mountain or just the most beautiful scenery. And if you're going to put yourself into the hurt box and go through nine hours of pain, you want to do it in Wanaka. Sounds like a bucket list race, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So finally, what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some earlier point in your triathlon career? Um, well, I was a footballer when I was young and my passion for football, soccer was huge. I was, I was very much a sportsman of all different sports, tennis, table tennis and the like. And I never thought I wouldn't play football all my life. Um, and I used to play football in the winter and triathlon in the summer when I was young. But I do, like most triathletes, probably bemoan the fact that I never were joined a competitive swim squad. I do admit that I am very, very lucky because, you know, I have been able to be one of those few people that have picked up swimming as an adult um, and been able to become pretty competent at it, you know, I'm sort of a, a 50-minute Ironman swimmer, sort of 50-minute wetsuit Ironman swimmer, which definitely puts me at the front end of, of most age group races. But I wish I was a 47-minute wetsuit swimmer. <laughs> And I do know that that's basically coming down to, you know, just missing that development as a competitive swimmer. And I think if you talk to any age group triathlete, the majority of them wish they were better swimmers. So I would say, yes, missing out on being a competitive swimmer. What are you doing for time, your time in Kona? 54, 54. Okay. And I, and I, I was a little bit disappointed with that because I did get, I think if I had made one more tactical decision, or no, it wasn't a tactical decision. I got absolutely swamped at the start <laughs> and then swam over by the first line. And I think I just missed one group that went a little bit further ahead and maybe swam high 53s. But at the end of the day, that would have only been just to massage my ego because 53-54 doesn't really matter. You've then got another eight hours, 20 minutes of racing to make up for that one minute. So I wasn't too disappointed. Uh, I guess you shouldn't be when you just won the Ironman World Championships. <laughs> so, only just though Mike. <laughs> only just all right thank, thanks this has been great but anything else that you want to tell us about Saint Point Free or Ironman racing and preparation training for it well I just firstly I'd like to say thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and we've uh, briefly liaised in the past by email so it's wonderful to meet you in person and I think what you're attempting to do here with the the Science for Triathlon show is is awesome I think it's a fantastic thing I think uh 
being able to add value to global triathlon by stepping outside what you can influence in your community and doing things like this and educating people is wonderful because, you know, like you or like me, you're probably doing it for free at the moment. But, you know, these things are valuable, valuable tools to lots of people. And I know I've learned so much from podcasts myself. I hope we've educated a lot of people on podcasts um, with what we've created. And I think what you're doing and the list of people that you've got coming onto your show is fantastic because um, I did have a wee laugh when you invited me and I think, man, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel here. But then I see some of the other contributors to your show and it's like you're really getting some of the the greatest minds in triathlon. So I I congratulate you on your endeavors and I think it's it's a wonderful initiative. Thanks a lot. And uh, now finally, I want to give you a chance to plug what you're doing with your coaching and, and with Fitter, the podcast and your coaching business and everything. Yes, well, we've been doing the podcast now for oh, at least um, two and a bit years. And, you know, it, it really has taken off for us. I mean, we've reached um, Finland and uh, and listeners like yourself, but we do have a very big global listenership now. I don't know. It was funny. We, we started it because we just love to talk about triathlon and we felt that we had a lot of information that we were can't always give to all our athletes and that we thought we could get value by creating the Fitter Radio podcast. So, you know, we do have particular ideas on what we think make training for endurance events and eating for fueling endurance events. So we wanted to get that information out there. So we've been very pleased with how that's been received globally and we'll continue to do it. So we had a great fun in Kona, recording lots of episodes there, and we'll um, continue and do that again next year, plus obviously putting out our weekly episode. My business has changed a lot because of the podcast. I did used to predominantly just have athletes based here in New Zealand, but now I coach all over the world. In point of fact, um, I think I probably only have a, two or three athletes here that are Auckland-based. And so that has offered wonderful opportunity to work with people and influence people who are racing lots of different races all around the world. So that's been fantastic. And from the podcast and obviously my sort of success as a coach, uh, I do have a number of professional athletes that I coach now. And uh, that's added a different dimension to, to the business It's something that I thoroughly enjoy doing. It's taken my um, thought processes to a next level because not only are we just now training athletes for their own personal success, we have athletes whose income depend on on race success as well. So that's been a lot of fun and it's it's awesome to be able to take those athletes to to major races around the world and and the excitement of, of watching them perform against some of the household names in triathlon is is really, really exciting. So yes, um, I've been able to create a business that allows me to continue my passion for training and my passion for triathlon as well as, you know, develop an income from doing that. And uh, I can't see myself changing. So it's been great fun. And that's absolutely fantastic. Congratulations on that. Do you currently take on coaching clients if listeners are interested in it? What I do say to people is is uh, I work on a limited roster of athletes because one of the things that I'm very, very keen on doing is not compromising what I think I need to do to service their needs. The program is one part of what we do, but the conversation and the communication with athletes is is where a lot of my time goes. And I always I always encourage people to inquire and send us an email because 
I love different challenges and I'm always open to different challenges. So we always want people to at least contact us and see what we can provide for them, um, whether it be coaching that I can directly deliver or whether it be that we can refer them on to a coach who can provide the type of coaching that they're after. So yes, always send us an email. It may not be me that they end up with, but we'd definitely be able to uh, direct them towards someone that we can endorse. Excellent. And we'll include the links to your site and to the podcast in the show notes so people can go and have a look there afterwards. Okay, Bevan, it was really great talking to you. Thanks for being on the show. And uh, you mentioned the metabolic efficiency and nutrition, and that's something that I, I probably like to have you on at a later point to talk just about that, but that's a whole show in itself. Uh, so it is. get much yes. into it this time, but in the future. Yeah, absolutely. No, my okay. pleasure, Michael. So after that interview, you now have no excuse not to go out and absolutely nail your next 7.3 or Ironman, right? <laughs> well, anyway, that's not necessarily the case, but I hope that you got some great insights and, and good tips that you can apply in your half or full distance triathlon training. And uh, before we wrap up for today, I want to give a couple of quick shout outs to listeners of the show. First to Bruno, a Brazilian engineer living in South Africa, who I actually had a very nice Skype call with very recently, talking about swim training. I hope you're going on very well with your swimming, Bruno. Good luck with your training and, uh, and with your triathlon training in general. And also to Carlo from the Philippines, who is another pretty new triathlete, but he has already done quite a bit of racing last year and this year. And I was pumped to hear, Carlo, that the triathlon scene in the Philippines, where you're located, and in Asia Pacific in general, is really picking up so much. I really love to hear things like that, how our sport is getting more and more global, getting more and more recognition. And uh, I hope that we can all work together to continue to promote the sport and get all of our friends into the sport, because it's such a fantastic sport and fantastic lifestyle. Anyway... Thank you, Bruno and Carlo, for flying the Dash Triathlon Show flag in different parts of the world, in South Africa and in the Philippines. Uh, it was great to catch up with you guys, and uh, and thank you for, for listening to the show and for, for helping me spread the word about it as well. And uh, yeah, fantastic to hear that we got such an international audience already. These are, these are still early days in the show, so I'm really pumped about that as well. As always, you can go to thattriathlonshow.com where we'll have the show notes for this episode. And in the next episode, our guest will be Frank Velasquez, who will talk about strength training for triathletes. And uh, that is a really good one. So I highly recommend that you tune in for that. It will be out on Monday. If you dig the show, the best way to show it and show your appreciation is to go to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash rate and that will take you to itunes where you can rate and review the podcast directly keep training smart and keep loving triathlon 